0: That's the most important thing you can do right now today to try and get your best sleep possible.
1: That time when you lay your head down on your pillow may feel like downtime. But for your brain and body, it's just a different kind of go time. How do you know if your sleep is good enough to protect your heart? And how can you get it better? CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive while we're still alive to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board-certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please. Talk with your physician before making changes. I'm lucky to be joined today with Dr. Imran Sheikh. He's a sleep medicine and obesity medicine specialist, as well as an internal medicine physician. He works in both hospital and primary care in Illinois. He did his training at SLU, or the St. Louis University, and his sleep fellowship at Rush University in Chicago. He's currently an active member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, particularly in public awareness. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. So many problems
0: with sleep, so many problems with weight, that just leads to so many other problems. So happy to
1: discuss more with you today. Yeah. So right as we get in, just one question I like to ask people is, what is your definition of health? So I like to think of
0: health as a big component of multiple things. But the main components, I think, are your physical health, your mental health, your social well-being, and your sleep. So those are a lot of the topics that I tend to pick on a lot and try and review as much as how are you doing physically? What are you eating? What are you drinking? Are you exercising? How's your mood? Are you in a good mental state? How Are you in society? Do you have a job? Are you connected with your community? And then sleep, which a lot of people don't pay enough attention to, but it's essentially one of the biggest pillars of a good, healthy
1: lifestyle. Yeah. Foundational. It is very foundational. Yeah. Oh, so let's start right there. What is sleep? Is it the same thing as a coma?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, not the same thing as a coma, but sleep is essential. It is what we use to keep ourselves healthy and functioning. It allows your body basically the ability to repair, restore, re-energize. It helps us resets and really helps us balance a lot of things in our body, including like our hunger and appetite. It helps us improve concentration, creativity, productivity, reduces issues in mental health, helps relieve like stress and anxiety, and it even improves our immune system. So it's really a very, very critical part of time in our day-to-day life that really allows us to re-energize
1: again. It sounds like you are passionate about it, which is fantastic. How did you actually find that passion for sleep medicine while you're in internal medicine? How did you choose to get into that particular field?
0: So it's interesting. I definitely, from the get-go, didn't want to do sleep medicine. I (laughs) didn't know anything about it, honestly. You don't really get too much exposure to it in training. I actually initially wanted to do cardiology. I wanted to be a cardiologist. But then the more time I spent in my training, I realized that I didn't want to be the person who had to step in when something severely bad was already happening. I wanted to be more of that person who's helping you prevent that from happening. And I think that's one of the biggest shifts in medicine nowadays is that really trying to take more of a preventative approach rather than a reactive approach. I did elective in my training and I just loved it at that point. And I realized how... It is to so many other medical problems. Really, every other organ, every other body system is somehow affected by sleep. There's just such a correlation between sleep and obesity that they really went hand in hand.
1: And that's kind of how I ended up getting into both of those. Trying to complete the picture to help people the most w- with their prevention. Exactly. Okay. So what does sleep have to do specifically with cardiovascular disease, heart and blood vessel disease? So multiple things, It's there are multiple different sleep disorders, so you kind of have to break
0: it down a little bit. But in general, poor sleep quality and poor sleep duration has been linked to quite a few cardiometabolic metabolic risk factors, most commonly things like high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, coronary artery disease, where you're having artery buildup. And there is a high rate of death among patients with heart disease who are having sleep problems as well, too.
1: What do you mean by that? The high, people with heart disease, if they start sleeping worse, they end up dying more? or People who are basically getting worse sleep or more at risk of death from heart disease, essentially. How much more of a risk is poor sleep for that and heart disease in general?
0: It's essentially two times, two times. Oh, wow. That what we tend to estimate. So the mechanism and what they think is going on is that lot most commonly we talk about things like obstructive sleep apnea, we're having pauses and breathing in the middle of the night. If you're ever pausing and breathing and having trouble getting oxygen into your lungs and into your, your body, that causes strain on your whole body, but especially your cardiovascular system. And it causes a strain on the hearts. So that makes your heart be faster at times, it can cause you to have increased blood pressure, or it can cause your heart to go into an irregular rhythm. And a lot of times these things are happening without us even knowing we're asleep, we don't even know what's happening. And that variability in heart rate and that stress can lead you to potential heart attacks or even sudden death. But it's not all the time. It's not extremely common, but it's not something you want to be happening regularly especially with how much time you spend sleeping. Most people are spending about a third of their life asleep. So that's a big time period that you want to make sure you pay attention
1: to as well. And make sure that's going as smoothly as possible. How long does it take for bad sleep to add up and actually cause problems? So it varies. Just having a couple of
0: nights of bad sleep, those can lead to more mood issues, like a decrease in ability to concentrate, headaches, smoothiness, that type of thing. But then if it's going on for longer and longer, that's when we tend to run into quite a bit more problems, especially things like accidents as well too. There's been a huge rate of drowsy driving and car accidents and people who are chronically sleep-deprived. And then once you get into that insufficient sleep for really long periods of time, that's when you run into the risk of raising that blood pressure, putting on weight, having higher risk of diabetes and depression and things like that. So over the long run, it's definitely much more dangerous than the short run, but you really, and it varies. Not everybody's going to have a good night of sleep every single night. You're probably going to have a couple nights that are not as good as others. Life is complicated. (laughs) As we all know, there are other factors that we can't control that will affect our sleep. But in general, trying to get the best duration and best quality of sleep is what we should all really strive for.
1: Okay, so what do you mean when you say the a really long time? Are we talking years or weeks or months? For this, I'm saying months, most likely months to years. Yeah, I'm more in the months to years when I'm saying
0: long time.
1: And then, how exactly does sleep? You've explained a little bit of obstructive sleep apnea, but what about things like sleep deprivation, just insomnia, noisy neighbors? how How does that cause higher blood pressure? How does that cause strain on the heart? so
0: it's a little bit different so things like insomnia and sleep duration there are more risks of heart failure linked to insomnia so trouble and trouble falling asleep and staying asleep that's really what insomnia is it can be either or both or just in general even if you don't have insomnia and you're just not not sleeping as much that's when you It's not as much of an effect on the blood pressure, but it does increase your risk of having those other heart conditions as well too. So usually we tend to recommend that you should be sleeping at least seven hours. That's really what you want to be targeting. If you're getting any less than that, that's when you start running into those
1: issues more often. Okay. Are we talking through factors like Insulin resistance and excessive inflammation, excessive exactly. stress. Water.
0: Yeah. So, lack of sleep leads to increased insulin resistance, leads to increased inflammatory markers like C reactive protein or CRP. It interferes with your appetite regulation. So, then you're more at risk of eating more. The longer you stay up, the less sleep you're getting. It affects your hunger hormones. So, it can lead you to be hungrier. And eat more. usually when you're eating, you're eating things that are not as nutritious and things you shouldn't be eating in the first place. So that tends to contribute to those more more issues. And then there's also a component of just the stress that it is having on your body overall that that leads to issues in the heart as well.
1: How do we know that it's the sleep directly that's causing problems? Is it possible that it's just all through these confounders through the creation of all these other problems that just from eating a lot more and getting larger and larger. And that's, that's a great point. And it is really hard to
0: differentiate between those two things, whether it's, it's kind of a chicken or the egg type of situation. Is it the sleep that's causing all these issues? Or is it a combination of the things? And for the most part, we know definitely that sleep or sleep leads to those issues or worsens those issues. So it's kind of inferred more that it promotes more harmful things that are happening in your body. And then that leads to overall your picture being at, at a worse health overall. So like sleep increases your chan- your risk of higher weight, increases your chance of diabetes and all those things independently also increase your risk of having cardiovascular events and things like that as well too. In terms of Sleep, in particular, when we're talking about obstructive sleep apnea, it's that repetitive cycle of your oxygen going down and coming back up. That leads to oxidative stress and systemic inflammation that just contribute quite a bit to the coronary artery disease or the buildup of plaque in your vessels, and that's what leads to heart attacks more commonly than not. But it, you're 100% right. It is a little bit hard to differentiate whether it's the sleep or whether it's the things that
1: are being
0: exacerbated by poor sleep as
1: well too okay so when it comes to sleep deprivation or poor quality of sleep it may be direct it may be just causing the other things that cause the heart disease but when it comes to something like obstructive sleep apnea snoring so hard that you're not getting oxygen and you're suffocating something about suffocation causes inflammation and the response to that inflammation causes such irritation that it causes plaque buildup, and then maybe a rupture and heart attack. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Yeah. So who's at risk for getting poor sleep? Are there any populations, be it by sex or race or age or jobs or where they live?
0: Who's yeah. at risk for so, this most? Yeah, there are quite a few risks for the certain people who, who are more likely to develop this heart disease. So it's very, very common. First, just so we have an understanding of how, how many people, they're estimated that about 70 million Americans do suffer from Whoa. some type of sleep problem. Now, there are tons and tons of different types, but some type. And about, they're expecting that about 30 million adults in the U.S. have obstructive sleep apnea, and about 23 million of those are undiagnosed. And that, is a huge cost on our healthcare system and our nation. They estimated close to $149 billion just from diagnosed sleep apnea. And it is much more common in men. But then there are also other things you have to look at, like people who are obese, who have a BMI above 30, they're at higher risk of having sleep problems, people who have high blood pressure, Really, the most common things you want to be looking out for is if you're having these symptoms, either like snoring, choking in your sleep, or waking up gasping for air. If you're feeling really fatigued or having daytime sleepiness, that just isn't getting better, especially if you have a bed partner. A lot of times I'm seeing people who are coming in, they don't think anything is wrong, but their spouse is like, I can't stand my husband or my <laughs> wife. They keep snoring so much please help. And that's actually the majority of the patients I end up seeing. So a lot of times bed partners can notice things. And sometimes they even notice that you completely have a pause in breathing altogether. And then other things like headaches, especially if you're waking up with morning headaches. Those are some of the things to look out for. Some of the things that put you
1: at a higher risk of having sleep apnea in general, or some type of sleep disorder overall. So this may be one of the reasons that married people live a bit longer is because they're when they stop breathing, somebody notices. Somebody <laughs> notices. Usually you're getting an elbow
0: or a kick or a punch, something. Somebody's usually waking you. <laughs> Maybe you're,
1: you're are, you are you still alive? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what factors are also detrimental to sleep? Is this kind of a reciprocal thing where sleep screws up your body and then your body can screw up your sleep? And if so, how does that work? So, yeah, it does go both ways. So, people who have high blood
0: pressure or have coronary artery disease or heart failure or a history of stroke, all of those people tend to sleep more poorly in general. And most often it is due to that sleep apnea. Also, individuals with heart failure are more likely to have a different kind of sleep apnea called central sleep apnea. There are two main kinds of sleep apnea, obstructive and central. So obstructive is more where you're having those pauses in breathing due to an obstruction, like a physical obstruction. You can't physically get that air down to that lungs. Whereas central is a little, a little different where you're just not getting the appropriate signal to breathe properly. From your um, brain. From the brain, exactly. So people with heart failure are more likely to be at risk for having those central sleep apnea events. But in general, basically all of those things that I mentioned, you're more likely to sleep more poorly in general, especially due to that sleep apnea.
1: Okay. We should probably define heart failure as the heart not pumping as efficiently and things backing up or building up as far as fluid loads. Exactly. Exactly. I know that your heart just isn't able to
0: pump out as well as it normally does or that it's not able to fill as well as it normally would also. But yeah, those would be the two main things in that heart failure.
1: So why do people with heart failure end up having more central sleep apnea? Do we have a reason? It's a little complicated. It is definitely much more complicated than obstructive
0: sleep apnea, I would say, and quite a bit harder to treat, I'd say. But there are a lot of new things coming out to help these people with central sleep apnea. Usually, it comes down to either something related to the brain, something related to the heart, or some type of medication. A lot of times, the opioids and narcotics can really suppress your drive to breathe. So not fully clear what it always is. And usually the best treatment is to treat the underlying issues, whether that be a heart issue or a brain issue or a medication getting off that medication. That's usually the first step and the first thing you want to target. Sometimes that's not enough. Often that's not enough and should really work on fixing the central sleep apnea as well.
1: So you want to forget both at the same time. All right. When you say brain issue or heart issue, what kind of conditions are you talking about?
0: Yeah, brain like strokes and any type of
1: degenerative disorder, essentially. And then for heart, mainly the
0: heart failure. On that.
1: Okay. So degenerative disorder like Alzheimer's and other kind of dementias with not enough blood flow to the brain and exactly that sort of thing. So I'm just wondering: we've got we've got REM sleep, we've got non-REM sleep, we've got different stages of sleep, we've got central apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. By changing what's getting screwed up whether we're missing out on non-REM and deeper sleep or we're missing out on REM sleep, is something there leading to specific kinds of other problems? For example, if we're not having enough REM sleep, we're going to get this kind of problem. Not having enough deep sleep, we're going to get that kind of
0: problem. There definitely is a big difference in all the phases of sleep. So we definitely, REM sleep is your rabid eye movement sleep. That's kind of your deepest level of sleep that we try and get. The most of as possible and that we try and maximize as much REM sleep as we get, as we can get. And the more interruptions or awakenings we have in that REM sleep, the more issues we, we tend to have. When you're in REM sleep, you're actually much more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea events or just sleep apnea events in general. So usually when we're doing, when we're testing people and seeing what's happening, it's very common that if you're going to have those pauses in breathing, it's going to happen in that REM REM period. Now, there are other sleep phases as well, too, some of the lighter stages. Just in general, there's a wake, there's stage N1, N2, and N3. Those are some of the other lighter, going to deeper phases of sleep, and then REM sleep, which is what we try and get as much of as possible. That's the most regenerative. So usually, if you are waking up more in your REM sleep, that tends to lead to more and more issues. Unfortunately, I don't think we have enough good data to say, are you more at risk of having like a cardiac event if you're waking up more in REM versus the other stages? But just the general principle is you, you try and get as much REM sleep as you can and try and keep that as uninterrupted as you can. And it does take time to get into REM sleep, but for most people, it's not instant. There are definitely some people like people with narcolepsy can get into REM sleep very, very quickly. But in general, the vast majority of people, they take about 90 to 120 minutes to get into REM sleep. And then you don't stay in that phase throughout the whole night. You'll stay in it for a certain amount of time, and then you'll kind of cycle in and out of it through the night. So there'll be different periods throughout the night where you're getting into that REM sleep. And trying to stay in that is probably one of the most critical things. But when you have those pauses and breathing in the middle of those REM periods, a lot of times those will push you out of it and then really interrupt your sleep in a a poor way. And we're going to infer that that's one of the mechanisms that's leading to all these issues is waking up from the middle of REM sleep. But unfortunately, there's not too much good data about that.
1: I remember reading a while ago that deep sleep or the non-REM sleep is actually the more kind of regenerative healing portion of the in the physical sense. And then REM was more of the memory version. And it was thought that the deeper non-REM sleep was more valuable.
0: So no, I definitely don't want to paint the picture that the other faces sleep are not as important. The N3 and N2, those are definitely very regenerative as well too. Those are a lot of that rest and rejuvenation comes from that. But the and you're, you're right as well, too, that the RAM sleep is more for that memory function as well, too. So definitely don't want to paint the picture that the other phases of sleep, like M3 is also very critical as well, too. That's probably the deepest phase of sleep other than RAM as well, too. So very important to get those well, too. And usually you'll kind of bounce back and forth between those phases. So,
1: yeah, definitely But you're right about that also. All right. So unfortunately, what you're saying is there's no part of sleep that we can just do without. Is that what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. There
0: is no (laughs) part of sleep that you can do without. You really want a good balance. And they're broken down their recommended ranges How what percent of your total sleep you should be in each phase
1: and things like that. But you definitely don't want to skip out on any of (laughs) them. Okay. Oh, that's unfortunate. All right. So we need about seven hours of sleep, as you said earlier. Does that change between different kinds of people? Is that the same men, women, ages? Ethnicity? Mainly ages. Okay. This is for adults that you
0: really want to be sleeping more than seven hours on a regular basis for adults. If you're not, that's when you run into those issues, weight gain, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, depression, risk of that. So sleeping less than seven, that is where you'll really get that those issues. And then sleeping more, that tends to be for younger people, for children. So you, it really is a tiered thing. At When you're like a newborn or an infant, you're gonna be sleeping a lot, close to the majority of your day. Then as you get older, it just goes down, down, down. Usually if you're sleeping more than nine hours on a regular basis, that's appropriate for young adults or people who are sleep deprived and are trying to recover from some type of sleep that but usually adults, seven and above, children, usually much higher, usually nine or above for any type
1: of child. Okay. So if I'm a healthy person or am a person with heart disease, does it matter if I'm sleeping too much? It doesn't necessarily, it's not going to lead to too many
0: problems, not nearly as much as the sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation is definitely worse than oversleeping, but then you can run into some issues as well to with sleeping too much. And those aren't necessarily health-related, I'd say, but more (laughs) society-focused is that if you're, some people are sleeping too much, it may be hard for you to function at a day job if you have to fit within those certain hours of the work window and that type of sense, that can be more problematic as well. But in general, usually the, bigger issue is the sleep
1: deprivation rather than oversleeping. Okay, so oversleeping is somewhat overblown as far as being a health risk.
0: Yeah, yeah. All
1: right, good to know. <laughs> not that any not that many people are lucky enough to have that problem. I know. I know. Usually if you are getting little
0: sleep then we tend to allow you to sleep a little bit more if you need to. But in general, you really want to just be as consistent as you can, like having as consistent
1: of a sleep schedule and a
0: sleep routine as possible. Uh,
1: How long does it take to recover from a night of bad sleep? Let's say I got four hours of sleep, or it was just terrible sleep? Yeah,
0: usually by the next night, if you're, if you're able to get a good amount of sleep the next night, usually it should be okay. But a lot of times there'll be a lot of night to night variability. Some nights you can sleep very little and other nights you can sleep much more. So it's hard to say how long actually it'll take it. It kind of just does depend on how your nights are going. You have a night where you get, say, four hours of sleep, and then the next night you get a good eight, you might be feeling back, but if you're getting consistently very little sleep, like four hours of sleep over and over again, then you might need a couple extra nights in order to recover that sleep debt.
1: Okay. That's not too bad. What is the proper level of functioning for a person? What is the definition of, oh, you have too much daytime sleepiness or you have too much fatigue? How does a person that might be experiencing that know if they're normal or worse than normal? Yeah. So that's, that's a good point to hit on
0: to is when do you know that this is a problem and that this is something I need to be doing something about? So really it comes down to How persistent are the problems and how much are they affecting your life overall? If you're persistently having issues with your sleep and you are just so tired during the day, you can't function at work or with whatever your daily activities are, you're dozing off, you're falling asleep, you're waking up with like headaches in the morning consistently, you're just having a lot of trouble concentrating and just unable to get tasks completed. Those are all signs that there might be something going on that's wrong that you might need to look into. Mainly, the bottom line, I would say, is if you're feeling that you can't perform your daily tasks or your daily activities because you're too tired, you're probably at a point where you should look into it or do something about it, or at least talk to your primary care doctor about it.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. What kind of things does the primary care doctor deal with for sleep? And what kind of things should be a signal that say, oh, you just need to go straight to a sleep specialist?
0: So yeah, that's a great point as well. So it really depends on your primary care doctor. Some primary care doctors are comfortable with sleep, comfortable with managing the basics. And they might say, hey, I can take care of this on my own. No big deal. Others might say, let's just have you see the sleep specialist. And it kind of depends on what the availability is for a sleep specialist in your area that you're living in as well. Basic things, I feel like primary care doctors can't take care of. If there's anything a little bit more complicated, that's usually what is worthy of getting into a sleep doc. A lot of times I, in my practice, just try and recommend referring to the sleep doctor right away if you think there is any type of sleep problem. Just in terms of management.
1: Oh, that's you. (laughs) Me, (laughs) yeah.
0: Just in terms of management. You should see me later. (laughs) Just in terms of like management of things related to sleep. A lot of times you need pretty close follow-up, especially if you're doing things like starting on therapy for sleep apnea, like CPAP or something like that. You really want some pretty close follow-up that leads to some of the biggest success and actually being able to tolerate therapy and things like that. So usually I do say try and get into a sleep doc as best you can. Now there are tons of different other sleep specialists as well too. Sleep doctors are trained, fellowship trained, and then they complete for certification in sleep medicine. Then there are also different types of sleep specialists like sleep psychologists. Those basically focus on the behavioral issues and the psychological issues more in terms of like insomnia and trouble going to sleep and staying asleep. Then there are also surgeons, so usually ENT, like ear, nose, throat surgeons, they can help with different surgeries that can address like airway obstruction and things like that. Physical problems, of the nose, mouth, throat, things like that. And then there are a ton of other practitioners as well to like advanced practice. Nurses, dentists, PAs, respiratory therapists, and like sleep techs were the ones who actually do the sleep studies on the nights when you come in for those as well. Then there are a lot of different people in the sleep world, but usually the starting point is always your primary care doc and your primary care doc will direct you where to go, whether you need to see a sleep doctor or not. Usually if you're going through like things like testing and management, if you have a sleep doctor available, I think it's
1: always best to just get their expertise as well too. Is there something that people can do or some things that people can do before even seeing a doctor? Oh yeah, definitely. definitely.
0: Most commonly, people really don't have best sleep habits in America and probably in the world. Life has just become very complicated for for us. And there are a lot of things that affect our sleep and there are a lot of things we can work on in general, mostly related to our sleep hygiene. And I think everybody in the sleep community really harps on having good sleep hygiene. And that's that's the most important thing you can do right now today to try and get your, your best sleep possible. A lot of people don't have set times or set wake times. That's one thing that you really want. You want to try and be as consistent as possible going to sleep at the same time, or at least trying to go to sleep at the same time and trying to wake up at the same time. And that's limited by a lot of things. Netflix, Hulu, people are binge watching TV get that warning. Do you want to stop first? Do you want to keep going? And people keep going far too often and that just delays your sleep. And then just electronics in general, people on their phones, on their computers, video games, and then even other things like drugs and alcohol use, we would know that that has a poor effect on sleep. Then people, if they eat too close to bedtime, that could be a problem too. And if they eat too large of a meal, Sometimes that can make it harder for you to get to sleep, especially people working late. A lot of times, the stress related to work that can just keep your mind running over and over again, and then news, sporting events that can get you really, your, you into a state that doesn't really promote sleep. So, really, you you want to focus on a couple main things, which is really getting that set schedule, very consistent sleep schedule, going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time, whether that's on weekends or weekdays. And that really just helps your body get into a very good routine. And then at least allowing yourself a window to get that seven hours. If you have like a set time, bedtime and wake time, then you know you'll at least have a window of opportunity where you hopefully could get that seven hours. And then having a good bedtime routine around that, doing things that will help you calm down and help you get into the best state to prepare for sleep as possible. Some things like some people like taking a hot bath or a hot shower, sometimes doing some light reading, that's something that's not too stimulating. Now, sometimes people can go overboard and get really hooked into a book and then just keep reading. Same, <laughs> you don't want to do that, but just some light reading, maybe a couple minutes just to help you wind down, or simply just brushing your teeth, washing your face, cutting out electronics, maybe 30 minutes to. To an hour before bed, just to really promote those good sleep habits.
1: I told yeah. people two hours, but I know, <laughs> Some people, I, know yeah. I know what's realistic and what's not. That's, that's what I like people to shoot for. <laughs> but tell take me through kind of when you see a patient that in both categories of oh, this looks more like sleep apnea, or this looks more like you are just not letting yourself sleep. And this is <laughs> how, yeah. what are your ways of diagnosing and treating, what does that look like for someone that might come see you? Right. So first I just start with a pretty detailed history. I try
0: and just figure out what, what is your problem? What, what has been going on with your sleep? So I just start very open-ended. Just tell me about your sleep, how is your sleep like doing? Usually they've been referred to me or sometimes people come in on their own, but I just try and get as much of the history as possible. Are you very tired during the day? are you dozing off during the day? How are you sleeping at night? Do you feel like you can get to sleep easily? Do you feel like you can stay asleep easily? If not, what what do you think is a problem? Do you think, as somebody told you you swore, as somebody told you that they've witnessed you pause breathing, do you wake up gasping or choking or do you wake up with headaches? And how often are you waking up? What, what is your schedule? When do you go to sleep? When do you wake up? How many times are you waking up? And if you are waking up, what is it? Is it waking up to go to the bathroom or just, you just don't know. And then even some other things like, have you noticed that you grind your teeth at night as a dentist told you that they see signs that you grind your teeth or are you very restless? Do you feel like your legs are restless when you're trying to get to bed and that just won't let you get to sleep? just I'm kind of feeling out to see if there's anything that kind of guides me in the right direction in terms of what the next steps are. And then what have you done about this previously? Haven't seen anybody else about this? Have you talked to anybody else about this? Have you had any sleep testing or sleep studies before about this? More often than not, if there's any concern of any type of sleep apnea, we're most likely going to recommend a sleep test, a sleep study. Traditionally, they were all in lab-based studies where you basically come in and spend a night in the sleep lab. You're hooked up to a bunch of equipment and you just try and sleep through the night and we monitor you and see, see how you do, see what's happening in the middle of the night. We can monitor so many, so many different things that like when you actually fall asleep, what phase of sleep you're in, whether your heart rate or your oxygen levels are changing while you sleep, And if you're having those pauses in breathing and what type of pauses those are, whether they're obstructive or central or mixed, and then are you moving around a lot? Are you kicking and punching your arms? Are you having these limb movements? That's one of the forms of sleep testing now is that in-lab study. Now we also have home tests now as well, which are very convenient. The home sleep tests are a lot of patients really, really love the home sleep tests just because most patients don't want to come in and spend the night in the sleep lab. And I don't blame them. That's definitely a very reasonable thing. Some people do. Definitely. It seems like it'd be hard to sleep there. Yeah. Some people definitely have quite a bit of difficulty sleeping in the sleep lab. So that's where the home sleep test can be very convenient, but they are definitely not as accurate. They can't tell the phases of sleep that you're in. They basically tell when you're asleep and when you're awake. Now, they're definitely improving in technology, and some of the newer ones are having those capabilities. So I think that at what time, they'll just continue to improve and get better and better. But really, if the home sleep test says, I don't think you have sleep apnea, usually that is not sufficient to completely rule it out. And usually Mm -hmm. in that case, I would recommend, if there's a, a high suspicion that you might still have it, I would recommend that you do actually do an in-lab one after that to prove and make sure that we really don't have this. It's very rare, but I have had cases where I've had a negative sleep test and then i sent them for an in-lab sleep test and I actually ended up having severe sleep apnea. in-lab <laughs> sleep test. So that has only happened once. It's definitely not very common. Usually it would only change, go up to uh, like a mild or a moderate on um, the in-lab mm. if it was, was possible. So those are the two main things that we do is the at-home sleep test and then the in-lab sleep test. And that's mainly evaluating for either obstructive sleep apnea for a limb movement disorder for, we can evaluate for bruxism or even any other unusual things. There are a lot of unusual things that can happen in sleep too. But then there are other tests we can do as well to Other things more towards the insomnia category. So that would be more things where you're tracking along. So something like a sleep diary, that's basically like a handout that you fill out or a phone app that you just report in where you are just tracking what time you go to sleep at, what time you wake up at, how many hours of total sleep you think you get. And it's we always advise that this isn't something you want to be focusing on too much and it's actually going to interrupt your sleep the night you spend. This is something you do the following day after you wake up and just are estimating roughly where you were. We don't want you like looking at the clock all night being like, okay, I'm falling asleep at <laughs> 11 yeah, PM. That's not what we want. Looking at the clock is one of the worst things you can do. Yeah. If you have trouble going to sleep or staying asleep. So what we want you to do is more wake up the next day and then record those things and see how you're doing. And then there are even more tests like things like actigraphy, that's basically like a watch that you wear while you sleep, which estimates how much sleep you're getting a night based off your movements and things like that. And then there are even more tests for even rarer things, like things like narcolepsy, where you fall asleep very quick most of the time or can get into the deep phase of sleep pretty quick. That's a, a very difficult test. It's called MSLT or a sleep latency test. So basically you have to do the nighttime study as well to do a nighttime study. And then you go into a daytime study, you take five short naps and see how quickly you fall asleep in those short naps. They're usually about 20 minutes and they see how quickly you get into sleep and how quickly you get into REM sleep. If you get into REM sleep in two of those five naps, then that's the diagnostic of narcolepsy. So there are a bunch of different tests we have that can treat different sleep disorders or evaluate for different sleep disorders. And then based on those tests,
1: those kind of help guide us on what the best treatment would be. Let's recap. I just love sleep and I don't think I'm the only one, but I'm not just talking about getting sleep. I'm also talking about the incredible power sleep has to heal and that poor sleep has to destroy people with poor sleep can have a 200% increased risk of heart disease related death. That's a lot. This is happening through mechanisms like our cells becoming more resistant to insulin, increased inflammation overall, and many other things. Dr. Shake's recommendations for most people as first steps is to make sure that you're on a consistent schedule, you have at least a seven hour protected window for sleep, and you have a good wind down routine so you can actually fall asleep more easily. We leave this discussion talking about how to know if you're having sleep problems. We're going to pick it up next time with how to treat those problems. I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, if you find yourself needing help to figure out what changes you need to make and how to actually enact them, come to CPRHealthClinic.com and schedule a free consult. Remember, the way you live can save your life.